And I finally said to him, I said, you know, we don't even need any data. Hell, we could build this thing off assumptions if we wanted to and just run a bunch of counterfactuals, which got me thrown out of his office, by the way. <laughs> I've been thrown out of that same office. I've said the same thing. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Roadmap to Revenue podcast. I'm your host, Greg Silverman, and on this show, we will interview today's industry leaders in analytics. We will discuss challenges, best practices, and what the future holds. If you're working in analytics and have always wanted to sit down with your peers at other companies to exchange ideas and learn, this show is for you. Join us each week as we bring you a new interview and extract our guests' expertise. This episode is brought to you by Concentric. We enable business to find their maximum revenue through prescriptive analytics. Our platform builds a mathematical twin of your market to understand the past, forecast how plans will work in the future, and search for opportunities to improve that forecast. This gives you the foresight and optimization capability that delivers revenue and a return on investment. Ready to experience market simulation just like our customers, Whirlpool, Universal, and Comcast? Contact us today at concentricmarket.com. Okay, welcome everyone to another edition of Roadmap to Revenue. Uh, Joined today with Charles Ellis at Material. Hey, Charles, how are you today? Doing good, Greg. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, it's really fun. We've been talking about agent-based modeling for a long time, you and I, and I'm just really happy to to catch up with you and see see what's happening. Just for the audience, just just tell us where you are today, what, what you're doing, what your job is, and uh, then we'll get into some of the things about the past and your own analytics journey. Yeah, for sure. So uh, at this present moment, I'm sitting in my office in my house in Cincinnati, Ohio. I work out of, uh, out of my home here. I'm employed by uh, Material, and in particular, one of their smaller groups, uh, Lieberman Research Worldwide, and I'm uh, a senior vice president in their marketing and data sciences department. I've been there for about five years now. Really like the company. Innovative. Let's me kind of play with stuff like concentric and agent-based modeling and, and all the things that we talk about. Yeah, I think that's the thing I miss most at concentric is just that constant feed of consumer research, right? Because you're really on the edge and the pulse of, of everything that's happening. Tell us a little bit about your career arc. How did you end up at Material? Some of the highlights, just a couple minutes maybe on your background. And Yeah. When people ask me about my, my career arc, it has a, a very predictable pattern, if you will. So I started out in college. I went to work for a while, realized that working was not all it was cracked up to be, went back to college, then decided that you know, the academic path, not for me, then back to work, then back to college. So it, it's been sort of a, an up and down, if you will. It's always been hard for me to settle on one thing. And so, you know, I got my first degree from the University of Colorado. I am trained as a political scientist, largely because I had enough credits to graduate with a political science degree <laughs> when I was, uh, uh, you know, getting my, my bachelor's degree. And then actually my career started in political campaigning. I was uh, very active in in politics and campaigning in particular. I think because I found a way to sort of mesh a substantive interest with a more technical interest. So I'm going to date myself a little bit. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, like there was not a lot of advanced analytics going on in political campaigns. And so when we talked about you know, the guys that were on the cutting edge in that space were running simple logit models, uh, which was really, really high end. 
for the day. Most of it was just cross tabs. But then, uh, so I worked for a while doing field work and campaigns, found myself back in graduate school at the University of Florida, Go Gators. They had a very unique program that was, was very specifically focused on kind of quantitative research within political campaigns. And so I was there for about two years and then found my way up to Washington, D.C., working for a uh, consulting firm. Again, same type of thing, but that kind of began my interest uh, in, in survey research and my, I guess my, my entree into uh, you know, survey research and, and political polling. Did that for about five or six years and sort of soured a little bit on, on political campaigns and maybe not campaigns, but politics more uh, and decided to go back and, uh, and pursue my PhD at Ohio State. Again, not a bad football school, not as good as Florida, but, you know, they, they hold their own. After realizing that probably a career in academic research and or teaching was not for me, I found my way into to marketing research. Again, largely because I had fallen in love with the analytics side of it. I had finally found math that I could actually do. And there was an application for it in the business world. And that's what led me to my first job at Ipsos here in Cincinnati. Been in Cincinnati sort of ever since then. And I've kind of my career within marketing research has evolved. So started out as kind of what you would describe as a traditional market researcher, right? Segmentation, choice models, what have you. Then was introduced by a colleague of mine to agent-based models. And I fell in love with that. Ended up going to work for Thinkvine, a small startup here in Cincinnati that focused on that kind of work. From there, I left to go head up a marketing science department at a smaller research shop called MAI out in North Carolina. And from there, found my way back to Ipsos and then through a variety of circumstances out to California, to LRW, where I am now. So that's the life and times of Charles Ellis in probably three or four minutes. That's pretty good. That's a good summary. I, I like that Florida was trying to mimic Georgia's you know, analytic program. I am sure oh, that's they were inspired. right. I forgot about the sure. MA down there. Uh, yeah, the- that's a fantastic program. It was the first ever, and I'm sure Florida copied it. And of course, you know, Ohio State, um, we both have the same opinion there. At least it's not Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting journey. Uh, a big portion of our business at one point in time at Concentric was political. We should talk about that offline another day. It's always this choice between alternatives and why people pick them. So the way we've been doing this, Charles, is just been looking at the analytics journey. We, we take these four buckets. I think I shared them beforehand. You know, what's descriptive, what's diagnostic, what's predictive, what's prescriptive. And I, I was laughing at myself. I said, you know, my first descriptive tool to date myself was Lotus 123, not even Excel. Right. I was, I was doing regressions in Lotus 123. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about how did you start explaining what happened? Are you still using any of those tools and what do you use now? It's actually a great question because I think back to when, you know, when I was in politics and, and political consulting, and it was almost all descriptive at that stage, right? We were using cross tabs, probably a tool similar to, to Lotus. I'm sure the tool whose name I forget is probably no longer even in existence. But what was great about that and what served me so well was you were forced to look at a lot of data in a very sort of aggregate way and be able to kind of pull out a story from that, right? So as I think about being able to then take analytics and serve a client, you know, 20, 30 years later, the ability to take big reams of data and go, okay, 
kind of see what's going on here. This seems to be the story. That all came out of the early sort of days of just looking through tons and tons and tons of just cross tabs. Now, it wasn't on the old computer paper that had sort of the, the, the punch outs on the side. The perforations. A little more, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little more sophisticated than that. But I mean, I remember probably my third or fourth boss, he told me, hey, look, Charles, there is no study that I cannot analyze within a 24-hour turnaround time. And it's just that because you get so used to looking at these big reams of data and going, okay, like I don't have to get too caught up in the details. I can see that picture you know, pretty quickly. So for us, it was the early stages were, were very much cross tabs. You know, the immediate stats packages, again, escaped me. Uh, but like I mentioned, like if people were using multivariate regression models, it was a pretty big deal. Like it was it was pretty unheard of. Yeah, it was complicated. What do you do now to tell those stories? What tools are you using today if you can share them? Yeah. So today it's um, a lot of it is Excel based or it's very simple. Um, I would say univariate, some multivariate uh, statistical models and What's interesting is so the, the tools that I learned to play with, you know, SPSS, Stata, SAS, you know, when, when I was in college, now have been replaced by things like Python and R and, and those kind of programming languages, which is an interesting, I think, transition within the industry, right? So you see it going more from the, you know, we were using the tool to get an end result. And now I feel like more and more people coming into the industry, it's about, uh, you know, I can create whatever model I want. I just have to know the programming language. So that's kind of a big difference from when I was a kid coming up versus the, the skill sets we see today. Yeah, no, I never underestimated the value of a chi-score test. And now my data science team says, well, we don't do math. We write code. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, and, I, get I get it. I get it. It's it's shocking, right, how, how much more productive it is. But I do think you lose a little bit of a feel. For that storytelling, for the nuance, for the you know the human in the loop kind of interpretation of results, right? Because you can get results, but then you have to you have to tell people why did it happen. So that was really kind of the next bucket. Is so how do you you know how did you do diagnostics and communicate? You know, here's the root cause, and what are you doing today? It's funny because now I I kind of serve this role with my team, so I'm going to piggyback off something you just said. But a lot of the young kids that we have coming up, and these are let's be clear folks that are far smarter than than I ever was or will be but that that skill set that they tend to lack is they come in and they say okay this is the model I need to program I've written the code it'll run the function and it's going to spit out the results but if I were to go to them and say you know what you have an interesting data generating process here where your survey data comes back and you've got a ton of zeros in the data like how, how are you going to handle this? And, and oftentimes the answer is, well, the algorithm's not designed to handle it, as opposed to being able to say, oh, I remember, I learned that like a zero inflated Poisson may be an appropriate model to kind of think about here. So it's that, to your point, the human ability to marry the problem with the analytics. And so getting to your, your actual question, when I was coming up, I learned from people that have been doing this for a really, really long time, right? So it is, again, the apprenticeship model where a really good friend of mine, Kurt Stenger, he had seen so much and he had looked at so much data. He could say, you see this pattern here? And I said, yeah, it looks like a bunch of numbers. He's like, no, no, what that means is this is what's going on and this is how you need to take it to the client. And so 
For me, it's more experience. It's sitting at the table with the client. It's having those discussions and really paying attention to how they use the numbers, which then allows me to come back and say, I know what I need to look for. And then in my role today, it's much more about sharing that experience with the younger kids, say kids, the younger people on the team to say, okay, you've got the results. Now let's talk about what they mean or or how you should take them to a client. It's still, if I can paraphrase, a little bit of an apprentice model on why did it happen. But the tools haven't changed, uh, you know, or they have changed. Uh, I would say the biggest change in tools for me would be sort of the movement to R, some of the network uh, models, which we found really useful, like Pagic is something that I started using probably three or four years ago playing with uh, because we do a lot of network modeling. But I would say for the marketing research industry, it stayed, for the majority of it, it stayed fairly consistent, right? So the SPSS users are still using SPSS, the SAS users, and I believe the SAS user is a dying breed, unfortunately, you know, are, you know, still use SAS. R has become very popular. And then, like I said, Python, we're starting to see that make some inroads in, into the industry as well. We live in R for any kind of post-modeling processing we have to do or data cleanup. But I, I agree with you, Charles. I haven't seen the fundamental way a diagnostic like an attribution or a, a trend analysis has changed. And that I think that testimony to you know the validity of the science, but also that you, you're not going to program away domain expertise. It's just it's impossible, right? Because you can you can get false answers and get false interpretations. And I think the other part of that is, and so this is an interesting distinction, the tool is not the answer, right? So it's like, oh, there's a great new piece of software that gives me the answer. No, there's a great new piece of software that allows you to do something with the data that you haven't been able to do before. But again, you have to get in there and sort of look at it and understand what it's doing and understand what the results are. And that's where kind of that that magic happens. I will say, and I may be repeating myself here, and I apologize if I am, but I think the real difference is now we've got people who are in an industry that have the ability to customize the models from a programming perspective, right? So back again in the early parts of my career, I was limited to what SPSS could do. So I ran whatever, you know, whatever Logia model SPSS ran, whatever algorithm, that was the one that I used. Now, I think probably you and your data science team, I know the guys on my team, if we need to program a specific algorithm for a specific program or problem, we can do that. It sits separately from what I would say traditional MR is, right? You've got like an IT software engineering group, and then you've got a group of marketing scientists who can say, great, thank you for creating the tool. Now I'm going to use it. I'm going to go you know, try and help my client make some money. So we've been talking a lot about the past. How are y'all dealing with the future? How are you making forecasts and predictions for your customers? What's that like? This is an area that, just being completely honest, is is something that's a little bit new to us. I would say for the longest time, and, and even the longest time, up until probably a couple years ago, we were still looking at predictions as being the output of DCM or choice models. Right. And, and you and I both know sort of all the 
the, the pitfalls of doing that, you can get a prediction, but hell, I can get a prediction off a, a regression line or some kind of. Yeah, but I, I'm at a good 10 years using Sawtooth software. I mean, <laughs> don't, you know, I, and a lot of great results. So I'm not, I will never poo poo that technique. I, I had a great decade on that, right? It's like anything else, right? It's, it's a good tool if you know when and how to use it. The newest thing for us has been really the introduction of the concentric market software and really looking at forward-facing, forward-looking simulations and simulation capability. And, and honestly, if I think about making good predictions, it has to be about simulation, right? It, ha- it can't be about and backward-looking averaging of, of what has happened. It's got to be about, is there a tool that can take the data together and say, now this is what's going to happen moving forward? So really, our predictive models have been leveraging the concentric and the agent-based modeling platform you know, most recently. Well, well, thanks for saying that. And you know, I think it's been a, a dramatic kind of revelation to the people who go deep enough into it because you know, I loved your comment, the tool is not the answer, right? The tools and enabling technology and essentially should disappear over time. And what's equally important, I think, in prescriptive and predictive now is having an, a narrative about the industry, having a narrative about the future that you're testing. It's become a research hypothesis that's run in silico, right? It's, it's just a simulation and you can test hundreds of hypotheses to find which one is most likely. And then my story is people go and battle test that. They do more research. They look at competitive intel. They start tracking new metrics. Is that a fair journey or a revelation that you're experiencing using Concentric now? Yeah. And, and I would say this is probably a revelation that and this makes me sound smarter than I am, that I had, it's got to be going on 10 years ago now, which I, I think is an interesting point to make, not because, again, not because it makes me sound smart, but because it, it highlights how difficult it is to change perceptions within our industry. So again, I'm going to reference Kurt Stenger, who's like very smart and kind of a mentor to me. But he and I were talking about like the value of agent-based models and simulations a fair while ago. We worked together at ThinkFine. So I love this idea of moving away from data for the sake of data and using data to generate insights. But even beyond that, and I remember one of the nastiest arguments I got in with an account manager at at Ipsos at the time was I was trying to explain to him, like we were thinking about doing some agent-based modeling. And he's like, well, what kind of data do I need to collect? And and very, very survey researcher mind. I don't, I don't, it's not a criticism, but it's because it's the way we're all taught, right? Like got to design the questionnaire. What's the sample look like? Yada, yada, yada. And I finally said to him, I said, you know, we don't even need any data. Hell, we could build this thing off assumptions if we wanted to. We just run a bunch of counterfactuals, which got me thrown out of his office, by the way. (laughs) I've been thrown out of that same office. I've said the same thing. I've said the same Uh, thing. Yeah, it's and but but yeah, and that and that's where you can kind of see it in my face. Like that's where I get passionate about this, right? Because it becomes it's not about doing the research. It's about turning the research into something. And the way you do that, especially with the computing power we have these days, is you just run a ton of these counterfactuals and you go, okay, this is the one that gets me closest to the goal that I'm looking for. But, and this goes back to the 10-year comment, I've had this battle and I'm sure you've had way more of them. 
in trying to get people, not only clients, and oftentimes I think clients are easier to convince than agency partners, right? Because as researchers, we have been taught in such a rigid way, like, this is what you do. This is what we deliver. And when you, even when you tell them something as simple as, okay, a simulation platform is not going to deliver you a PowerPoint deck with an insight. It's going to deliver you an, a living tool to allow your client to uh, make better decisions. Even that becomes hard to wrap your, your head around. I'll, I'll give you one last story and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop rambling. Joan Lewis, who was head of analytics for uh, globally for Procter & Gamble a, a while back, I remember hearing Joan speak and something she said just resonated with me so much. But she was talking about where is the industry going, right? What has changed? And this was now probably eh, three, maybe four years ago. And she said, look, you know, when a lot of us came up, it was about being a good methodologist, right? You know, do you have a representative sample? Do you have like good question design? You know, and, and these were the things that mattered in analytics. And today she's like, that's not it. Like, not that those aren't important, but business is moving at such a speed that what matters is the insight. Give me the insight. And quite frankly, if the, the, the research methodology is not 100%, but I can still get an insight that's going to help me drive my business, like, I, I'm going with the insight. And it's just a light went off in my head. And I'm like, that's it. That's where the future is. Stop worrying about, did we design the survey correctly? And start worrying about, did we generate a meaningful insight for our client? I'm not sure if that's at all relevant to your question. Greg. No, no, that was the last. That was the last question. Like, what? What's the future of the big idea? And I think you've nailed it. We're 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 a little bit over on time, so I'm just going to thank you for your insights. I think it was a great discussion. I hope the audience enjoys it, and um, we'll be back soon with another episode of Roadmap to Revenue. Great, thank you, Greg. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and share this episode with your network. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Concentric. We enable business to find their maximum revenue through prescriptive analytics. Our platform builds a mathematical twin of your market to understand the past, forecast how plans will work in the future, and search for opportunities to improve that forecast. This gives you the foresight and optimization capability that delivers revenue and a return on investment. Ready to experience market simulation just like our customers, Whirlpool, Universal, and Comcast? Contact us today at concentricmarket.com.